This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. We've started a new book of the Bible, the book of Esther, and Pastor Pierre Rosa is preaching from chapter 1 today. To understand what God is doing in the story of Esther, there's a bit of prologue and a lot of history and setting that needs to be covered. God promised to protect and preserve his chosen people. But thanks to their disobedience, they're now in captivity. What God wants us to know from this story is that he is sovereign and he keeps his promises. And what's important for us, even today, is to know that a silent God doesn't mean an absent God. His providence will prevail in spite of our circumstances. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Last week, we learned about divine providence in spite of people's unfaithfulness, when a nation promotes perversion, and when a nation hails hedonism. We saw those two. And today, as we pick up where we left off from the first chapter of the book of Esther here, I want you to see divine providence in spite of people's unrighteousness. First of all, let's see how that happens when leaders indulge in iniquity, verses 10 through 11. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles in the first chapter of the book of Esther. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commended Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princess, for she was beautiful. Now, a couple of things here. I told you last week we were going to butcher names here. These are very unusual names. They're Persian in origin. These guys are eunuchs of the king because, remember, the king had a harem of upwards of 350, 360 women. And the number of the eunuchs here gives us an idea of the size of that whole thing here. It took seven of these guys to manage that harem. Now, an affair with one of them would result in capital punishment for both people involved because the perpetrators would not only dishonor the crown, but also potentially desecrate the dynasty. So for this reason, only castrated men qualified for the job. Now, Ahasuerus was notorious for his irrationality, even when he was sober. For example, historians point out that once he ordered his generals to punish the sea by whipping the water with chains because the high tide had disrupted one of his military campaigns. So this is a man with the biggest ego in the ancient world. And when you have the man with pride and the biggest ego in the ancient world mixed with wine and alcohol, bad things happen. That is what we see here. He had too much wine in the second banquet, and he made a demand here. He demanded that his preferred wife would parade, very likely wearing nothing but the crown, likely performing some sort of suggestive dance. So the king's booze-soaked, morally questionable request serves as a reminder to all of us here about the destructive power of alcohol and other intoxicants. But Paul instructs us very clearly here, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 
5 verse 18. Now, this is not a prohibition on drinking a glass here and there. Paul was the same man who told Timothy, drink a little bit of wine for your stomach, the medicinal use of that. But when alcohol dissipates, any sense of right and wrong, bad things happen. And bad things are about to happen in this story here. But I want you to see, even though this is a dark scene, we're looking at a story of a man who had multiple wives. I mean, already a distortion of God's ideal for the family, for marriage. But I want you to see God's providence in spite of people's unrighteousness, not only when leaders indulge in iniquity, which is the case here, but also when leaders rush to rage, which is what happened next. Now, this guy had a temper, obviously. Listen to verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Church, this guy is not used to hearing no for an answer. This guy is surrounded with yes men, with people who know what the king likes, what he wants. And now for the first time, he's hearing a no from his preferred wife. The queen committed a capital offense by publicly defying Ahasuerus. Some people believe that she was pregnant with Ahasuerus' son, a man by the name of Artaxerxes. We don't know that for sure. That could be the case. But that would explain at least the reason she wasn't killed on the spot. But now what we have here is a drunk and now embarrassed monarch here who may have controlled 127 provinces. But there's one thing he could not control. And in his mind, he was furious because he could not control the response of this woman his wife. Now, obviously, this would raise a whole bunch of questions in the military officials. Did they have second thoughts about his ability to lead them in war? Now, here's a point I want to make. Vashti certainly was not a follower of the God of Israel, I assure you. And I even hesitate to use her as a model of virtue. Who knows what took place in her her banquet? Remember, she also threw in a banquet for the women of the palace along with all the concubines and all of that. Who knows what went on there? We know that this is a family of people who like to party and they, they really, they like their alcohol. But her display of courage in this scene here catches our attention. This is something unusual. By the way, that's the biblical writer's way of highlighting something in the text. Because this is so out of the ordinary. You have a man who controls 127 provinces, which is the known world at the time, at least in the part of the Middle East there. He's a very powerful man. He comes from a long line of conquerors. Cyrus the Great was his grandfather. He is getting ready to avenge the loss of of Darius in the Battle of Marathon. And now his wife tells him no which is a great thing to do. I mean, this is a glimmer of light in this dark stage here. Way to go, Vashti. But ladies, here's the lesson. I am afraid that like this drunken monarch, our culture wants to form you into its mode that opposes God's ideal for marriage, sexuality, and femininity. That's the parallel here. We live in a culture that wants to mold you, ladies, into a particular form. For example, current cultural role models feature women who don't reserve intimacy for marriage. Instead, they date around as many guys as possible, or gals, until they settle with the one who makes them laugh and doesn't interfere with their career. Now, if marriage doesn't fulfill, get a divorce or two or three. That's how the culture wants you to function. And according to this model... When a pregnancy presents an inconvenience, in some states, we'll gladly sponsor the murder of the unborn child. 
That's the current cultural motto here of womanhood, of femininity here. That's what the world wants us to believe. That's what the world wants us to buy. And Vashti was confronted with something similar here when the leader of the known world is telling her, I want to objectify you. She said, no, good for her. Now, like Vashti in this scene, we should reject worldly standards of womanhood. Instead, we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Remember, there is a force in the world that wants you, ladies, to be transformed into its mold, the mold of the culture of society here. We will dictate morality for you. We want you to conform to this ideal of womanhood and femininity here, even in models of beauty that the world standard, the worldly standards present to us. But Paul says, no, 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 don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So instead, church, we should embrace, all of us, the biblical perspective of womanhood and femininity, which Paul explains very clearly here, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 10. Remember, he's writing to a young pastor, and he says this, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold and pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, let me make a few disclaimers here, ladies. Scripture has nothing against you wearing makeup, okay? Or Scripture has nothing against you sporting certain hairstyles. Good for you. You have hair. You can do that. I can't. Instead, this passage calls for purity of heart. Do we understand that? The, the principle here is purity of heart when presenting yourself in public. That's the idea. The world says, you know, draw male attention as much as you can. The Bible says don't do that. Let your character shine through in your words and your conduct. So sisters, please. Clothe yourselves with Christ's likeness to shine the spotlight on your Savior, not on yourselves. And again, Paul explains, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Romans 13 verse 14. And obviously that goes for men too, for all of us. In fact, let me address my brothers now. Don't ignore the connection between intoxication, the desire for control, and sexual sin. These things are all related. Intoxication, the desire for control, and sexual sin. Now, Ahasuerus did something acceptable in his culture, even expected for a man of his stature. But listen, objectifying women is always sinful. There's never an excuse for that. It is never okay to do that directly or indirectly. And if you say, Pastor, I, I would never do anything like that. And I, 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 I'm sure you wouldn't. But let me share some alarming statistics with you and hopefully draw a parallel to an endemic problem of our culture, okay? Now, I don't need to tell you that we live in an over-sexualized, over-romanticized culture. We know it. But let me share some statistics with you here. This is from a ministry called Covenant Eyes. You may have heard of it. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say that they view pornography once a month. Ten years ago... Only 55% of adults, 25 or older, believed pornography is wrong. According to a survey titled, Effects of Cybersex Addiction on the Family. This was 20 years ago. Wives who learned of their husband's habit of consuming filth online reported feeling hurt, betrayed, rejected, abandoned, lonely, 
isolated, humiliated, jealous, and angry. And men, I wish I could report to you that I've only received one or two of those phone calls. But no, if I need to be honest with you, this is an endemic problem, even in churches. Which means, church, if you allow our culture to dictate your morality, this is where we end. If you allow the culture to tell you how to be a man or a woman, this is where it'll get us. And, and you will end up doing something like Ahasuerus did, perhaps not with the same intensity here because of a different position. But if you allow the culture to dictate your morality, you will be intoxicated with wine, arrogance, and lust. The results will devastate your health, your family, and your reputation, and most importantly, and tragically, your walk with God. I have seen men destroy their lives because of the combination of alcohol, lust, and the desire for power. So church, let's not be part of these statistics here. Let's follow the godly model for womanhood and for manhood. But here's good news. You ready for some good news here? I gave you the bad news of the statistics here, but let me give you good news. Jesus instructs immoral people here. He instructs sexual sinners like this. I do not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. John 8 verse 11. So my friends, if you have that in your heart, if you have been struggling with any of this, the good news is that Jesus tells you, do not sin anymore. Go. Be freed from your sin. If you are in Christ, you have the ability to say no to your sin. The problem is if you're not yet in Christ, the sin controls you. But if you are born again, you have been freed. If the sun sets you free, he says, you have been freed indeed. And you can say no to sin, sexual sin or otherwise. You have the Holy Spirit that lives in you. Let the Holy Spirit control your minds and your actions. Because Paul says in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Meaning let the Holy Spirit control everything that you do, say, or even think about. See, our culture may have attempted to expel God, but he never stops working behind the scenes in human conduct here. He stirs the heart of people and determines the seats of government to accomplish his sovereign purposes and his perfect will. And in his economy, remember, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Romans 8, verse 28. And the reason we're saying this is because Queen Vashti here risked everything by saying no to the king. Obviously, we don't know that she loved the Lord, and probably not. But what we see here is the providence of God working in the decisions of people in order to bring about His providence here. And obviously, He's not responsible for the sinful choices that people make. That's an absurd statement, to think that God is responsible for the sinful choices of people. No, the Bible constantly tells us to make the right choices. So the perspective for us Christians is this. Even when there is a sinful culture working against you, working against your spiritual growth, the glass is always half full for us believers because it's an opportunity for us to shine even brighter when the culture descends into madness, which is the case for us today. But I also want you to see something else here. Divine providence, in spite of people's unrighteousness, not only when leaders indulge in iniquity and rush to rage, which was the case of this man here, but also when leaders reject righteousness. Verses 13 through 20. Let me read that portion to you. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew law and justice and were close to him. Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Morsina, and Mimukin. 
the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small." Now, the author is introducing us here to a couple of concepts here, uh, and one of which is the king's lack of leadership, his personality here. Now, the insubordination of the queen here worried the royal court. That is very evident. These guys are now terrified that she's going to start a movement, the Me Too version of the ancient times. So they're concerned, and they're saying, wait a minute, this is going to be known to all the provinces here. This is going to be bad, not only for the people, but for us. They're concerned about themselves. These guys with those weird names, they're saying here, even our wives will hear about this, and we're in trouble now. But this guy, Mimukin, obviously the spokesman of the group here, reminded Ahasuerus of a Persian law that would prohibit him from going back on a decision. So these guys were clever. They were sneaking this idea to the king so that even if he changed his mind, the law prohibited the annulment of royal edicts. And again, the author is going to move the story along on this particular track here. So keep that in mind. And the author also gives us good insight here of the, into the personality of this king, which obviously this is not a godly man, but he lacks a key component in godly leadership. Namely, surrounding yourself with people who will respectfully point out to you when you are wrong. That's a key concept in leadership. Now, obviously, because this is an evil man, he surrounded himself with people who will always tell him yes. But the key point here, the negative example is, whenever we're in a position of leadership, we want to make sure that we surround ourselves with godly people who will lovingly, respectfully point out to us when we make mistakes. Now, these guys should have advised the king to Quit drinking, man. Or they should have said, wait a minute, things are going to get worse if you don't stop drinking? Or, or how about this, an imperial order dissolving the harem and outlawing objectification of women? That would have been a great law to pass. But they feared that their own wives would follow Vashti's biblically justifiable civil disobedience. This was a biblically justifiable case of civil disobedience. And like her, we must respectfully and peacefully draw the line, church. If our government ever passes any laws forcing us to do something that violates God's word or demanding that we don't do something that scripture has clearly commanded us to do. And for example, if our government ever passes a law outlawing evangelism, we say no. We will continue to preach the gospel no matter what you will do to me because we are commanded by a higher authority and the higher authority told us you are to make disciples of every nation. 
And you are to preach the gospel. Or if our government ever passes a law forbidding us to assemble permanently as a church, we'll say no to that as well because we are commanded in Scripture to gather together for the encouragement of one another and for corporate worship. So if that ever happens, we say no and we bear the consequences. That's the thing. God may not free us from the consequences or the wrath of government leaders. Now, we may be a long way from that here in the United States. We may not. We don't know. It doesn't matter. Because we know exactly what we are to do. We are to follow Scripture no matter the consequences. So with the example that we see here from Queen Vashti and the other examples from Scripture here, the lesson for us is very clear. This is biblically justifiable civil disobedience. And we must engage in that whenever leaders tell us to violate God's Word. Which leads me to the last point here. Finally, I want you to see God's providence in spite of people's unrighteousness. Not only when leaders indulge in iniquity, rush to rage, or reject righteousness, but finally here when leaders enact evil, verses 21 through 22. Now, this word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent leaders, uh, he sent letters rather, to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language. And the letter commanded that every man should be the master of his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. So a twofold command here that this edict of the king is commanding. What this edict is doing here, church, is this is government-sanctioned abuse of women, basically. And this is a grotesque deviation from the biblical principle of the male headship of the household. Let me give you an example of that principle. My wife and I share the same nature. In essence, we're both people. We're both image bearers. We're equally representing our Creator and our Redeemer. We, we both share that nature. And because we're both born again, we're also co-heirs of salvation. We are saved equally because God has decided to save us and to make us heirs of the grace of life equally, according to 1 Peter 3, verse 7. But we do not have the same function in the house, in our family. God expects men to lead their wives spiritually, to lead our families spiritually, modeling godliness, loving our wives sacrificially. Now, the Lord also expects women to submit to their husbands. But again, we do need to clarify this, church. Submission, biblical submission, does not mean subjugation. And that's what this edict is here. Listen to how God's prescription for the family functions here, which is, again, what we're seeing in this royal edict is a grotesque deviation of that. Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. You see how that principle is stated in Scripture? This is Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 30. Did you notice the common denominator here in the commands for wives and husbands here that the New Testament 
so clearly gives? Christ. We follow Christ's pattern for the family, not the world's, certainly not Medo-Persia here. And we follow his model for the family even when the biblical view of marriage comes under assault by the government. Now, the last part of this edict here addressed ethnic mixed families. When they say if you are from different ethnicities, the man is supposed to determine what language you speak. That's what that edict was. And obviously, so again, that's a deviation from the biblical model. And that's the introduction of the story of Esther here. And in this story, God teaches us that he remains in complete control. And likewise, church, he never relinquishes control of your life, even, check this out, even when you make poor choices. Have you made poor choices before? Don't raise your hand, please. Have you made poor choices before? We've all made bad decisions before. The good news is that God remains in control. God will fix your mess like he has fixed all of our messes before because he is that loving. He is a God who is constantly providing, constantly getting us out of trouble if we just humble ourselves and recognize his sovereignty in our lives. If you haven't already come to faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day to make the best choice of your life. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.